Studio B in Athens, Ohio, you're listening to Sportsbeat on WOUB 1340 with Luke Steiner and Claire Geary. Now, here's your host, Luke. Sportsbeat, 1340 WOUB. Luke Steiner uh, here in the Sportsbeat studio as we get ready to go through the third week of classes, third Sportsbeat of the spring semester, last semester for the three in the room. Claire Geary, our producer behind the glass, in the room with me. We got Paul Roth and Taylor Jedrzejczyk. Obviously, a lot more guests will be coming on later on in the show as we got a full show for you. Uh, The biggest event in football coming up on Sunday. We'll talk some Super Bowl predictions and a couple of other uh, topics when it comes to the Super Bowl. I know a lot of people like to talk about those being the prop bets. Uh, Women's basketball, men's basketball for the Ohio Bobcats, both in action Earlier this week, Bobcats men's fell on the road 61-59 to the Northern Illinois Huskies. Bobcat women defeated the Akron Zips in probably actually one of the worst games that they played all year. Shows how really good they could be, uh, winning by a score of 70-57. to Well, quickly, obviously, I know most people have probably already heard the news from last Sunday. Uh, Kobe Bryant... Uh, found dead in a Calabasas helicopter crash. Everyone on the helicopter uh, dead at the scene. Obviously, a lot of information has come out since then on Sunday, and a lot of information was coming out on Sunday when the rumors were swirling. Obviously, officially, the, the nine that were on the scene have been officially announced. Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, um, alongside one of her basketball-playing uh, teammates Alyssa Altabelli, her dad John Altabelli, her his wife Carrie, and then uh, two other players. It's, excuse me, one other player and her mom Sarah and Peyton Chester. Uh, Mamba Academy basketball coach Christi- Christina Mauser and the pilot of that helicopter Ara Zobion. And one other interesting aspect I like to look at this is when Kobe Bryant's death it started swirling. swirling. Lots of videos came out on social media. And lots of false information came out on social media. And I know that all of us were looking at it because at the beginning, most people probably didn't realize or probably didn't want to believe that one of the best basketball players in our generation had just died in a helicopter crash. And what was happening on social media was that there was a lot of information that wasn't necessarily proven being thrown out there. There was reports that everyone thought that everyone, single person in Kobe Bryant's family had died in the crash. Obviously, that was not the case. And this is one of the main reasons that all three of us, it's me, all four of us, including me, go to journalism school. This is one of the number one thing that we learn. Yes, you want to be quick. You want to be the first people that get the information out. But it doesn't matter if you're first. You would rather be last and accurate than first and wrong. That's the biggest thing that one of the biggest things we learn. You have to be accurate in what you're reporting. Well, especially in a story like that. So, you know, the stakes are so high. You know, the people involved are, you know, huge that, you know, I remember seeing reports early on that it was everyone on there was him and all of his daughters and, you know, stuff like that. And just everything was just so unclear and just so confusing for the majority of that morning. I was from some like from one till like three o'clock. It was like 20 different reports, completely different. And there was really no reason to believe any of them um, until. Well, even later that night was when they came out, and they didn't know there was nine people. I remember I was watching it. was in, five for the longest time. Yeah, yeah, on NBC they were saying five, and that's what they had at the bottom. And then during the press conference when they said nine, they switched it and had to come back and say, well, now we learned it's nine because, I mean, nobody had it until that point. Well, and the question is, like, what is the ethics of those companies? Did they really just want to put the headline up there to put the headline up there to get the views? I mean, I, was, I saw a tweet of someone just saying that they hope they got sued because ABC definitely was on that list of publications that released false information. And it's not only damaging to the family, but they're already dealing with it on top of it. Yeah, ABC was the one who came, they broke into the Pro Bowl and said that his entire family was on the helicopter. You're right. And that's not great. No, especially when they're owned by a very big conglomerate and that's hurting their brand as it is. Well, then also they kept reporting that Rick Fox was on the plane and uh, he talked about it on TNT um, about the effect that it took. Because when he found out that Kobe was on the plane, he said his phone was blowing up 
um, while he was talking to his kids, telling them what happened, and he decided not to answer it because he said, you know, I figured it's just people wanting to call me about the situation. I know it's happening. I want to, you know, be with my kids, talk to my kids right now. But they were they were calling him to see if he was alive because there were so many reports saying he was on the plane too. And the other thing is, like, there was then reports about, like, his close friends, like LeBron, and how they exploited him. They kept a helicopter over the airport where he was mourning with his wife. Yeah. Like, give the man up some space. Everybody's going through it, especially those close to Kobe, like LeBron and his family. Yeah. Like, I, that I, was I, the saddest part about the whole thing is how much false information was spread. And that's why we're all sitting here today is to try and reverse that effect of sensationalist journalism and... It just sucks to watch it. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people don't always understand what we do, and they, uh, you know, certain things of, oh, you can't report on that, you can't report on this. But I think something that, like you just mentioned, Claire, that was sickening that doesn't really need anything is, like, of course LeBron is grieving. We don't need, like, we don't need to see him crying in the air. We don't need to have a helicopter hovering over him. Like, of course he's grieving. Like, when he has his first media public, you know... Uh, sit down like sure ask him then but like we don't need to see that kind of stuff same thing with that Michigan State player who was told on the floor that Kobe Bryant had died and you could watch his mouth saying Kobe like Bryant and then his mouth just drop on air like what was what was the purpose of that shot being put on air like as even just in the producing side of things why would you pick someone as they know that they're being told on the court yeah well I think too. I mean, part of that was Izzo telling him there, but I think even Izzo was prefacing him before going into the interview just in case they asked him. Um, I don't. Did you I didn't watch the interview. I didn't either. Did I. I, if I had to guess, I would not be surprised one bit that Cassius Winston, the Michigan State player that Claire yeah. was talking about, was asked about Kobe Bryant because when you look at Cassius Winston, a lot of people compare him sort of to a smaller Kobe Bryant. Yeah in his college career so I completely understand why Tom Izzo as a coach and just as a personal friend and father figure to Cassius Winston I completely understand why Tom Izzo gave him the news before the interview because you don't want him to figure that out on the interview at all that's the last thing that you want if you're Cassius Winston if you're Michigan State or even if you're I believe that game was on Big Ten Network Yeah. yeah but that's the absolute last thing you want and the one thing, I read a story today on ESPN about John Altabelli. Most people, he came out, his information coming out around the helicopter crash came out a lot later in the day. He was one of the four that wasn't necessarily originally thought. But John is a head coach, well, excuse me, was a head coach at Orange Coast College in California, which was a small JUCO. He was a baseball head coach. He was there for over 20 years. This story was about his brother, Tony, who found out through a mutual friend that texted him was like, hey, like, did you hear about the Kobe news? And then he texted his assistant baseball coach and told his assistant coach was like, hey, did you hear about the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash? And the assistant coach said, hey, you better check on your your brother because it is known that John likes goes to most basketball tournaments with Kobe Bryant on Kobe Bryant's helicopter. So he does obviously text him, doesn't get any information back. And of course, the worst the worst thoughts come through your mind. That's just what's going to happen. And J- Tony Altabelli, John's younger brother, is the sports information director of the junior college. So he, as the sports information director of the junior college, has to write official press release once it's for sure that John had passed away in this helicopter crash. I could not imagine. If your brother just died, you're an assistant baseball coach and the SID, and you have to write a press release about it. Well, not even not even just that too, but it was his brother, his brother's wife, and his niece. Yeah, I say it was both him, his wife, his daughter, and they have two more kids too. You know that that weren't on the chopper that just lost all three of those people. I mean, I think that's what's lost too. A lot of this too is like, you know, obviously, you know, Kobe and Gigi were the two um, biggest people that have been thrown around and talked about um being on that chopper but i mean nine people lost their lives there and like not everybody is being focused on so and that's the sad part is the families that aren't being focused on in this whole story because granted kobe is like he is the face of basketball mr basketball right but there's so many other lives that are affected and you couldn't you know we all talk about the immediate families but there are so many more people in those lives and, and those people that were in the helicopter 
And let's look at the circumstances of the crash, too. That whole situation of them flying low and not being good flying conditions, but having a very experienced pilot, like, all of it doesn't seem to add up. And I think that's what's really boggling everyone right now and waiting for the results. But there was no black box on it, so are we actually going to get those results? Hopefully nothing's made up in place of that, but as we saw with the beginning, I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen. It's also just so it's all just so sudden. Like uh, I was talking to my dad yesterday. The day after LeBron James broke Kobe's scoring record for third. Yeah, like Kobe was in the news. I was watching Sports Center that morning and they were talking about how he passed um, how LeBron passed Kobe for points and they had his tweet up there and that was Kobe's last public statement. Mm -hmm. Like but I was talking to my dad yesterday about how sudden this was and like you don't have very many deaths like this in the sporting world that are this sudden. No. Like a few that come to mind when Dale Earnhardt died in 2001 that yeah. was that was during the event though. Yeah. A little different. Yeah. Roberto Clemente. Say so that's the first thing I thought um, of this is like Clemente. Yeah. Uh, NASCAR's had a, a couple like aviation incidents that have taken drivers mm-hmm. on the way to tracks. Um, Alan Kowicki was one in the 90s. He hit the side of a mountain and going to Bristol, Tennessee on his way to the race. The truck was already there. Mm-hmm. So, like, sometimes this happens in sports, and it's it's just so sudden. And I, I've never seen so much unif- um, universal, like, just shock and the same reaction from all over social media. Yeah. Like, the various different parts of my social media, like video gaming and Charlotte and Cleveland, neither of which were big Kobe havens yeah. of fandom. Yeah. Like, just this universal, just like, oh my God, this just happened. And I think that's Kobe's legacy, right? And that's what everybody's really talking about in the news. Like, you could always look at his stats and say how incredible of a player he was, but most importantly, his legacy that I left behind with the remaining family members that are here now and then everything he did for everyone else. I feel that's why there's big impacts in places like Cleveland and Charlotte where eventually he was traded from Charlotte and then brought to L.A. But every single corner of this country he's touched with basketball in some way or another. And that's, I think, America's biggest loss is that he made such a great impact within his sport and within his sport community because he loved it so much. And it's hitting every corner of the states because of it. Couldn't say it much better than that, but we'll obviously, once again, we were talking about the surprising death of Kobe Bryant and all the eight other individuals on the helicopter crash from Sunday. We obviously wish our condolences to all families that were involved, but we will move on to the Super Bowl. As I know, Paul is looking forward to the Super Bowl. Jake Ramada has joined us in that time we were talking about Kobe Bryant, but we'll... We'll make this show a little happier now that we're going to talk about the biggest football event in the world any year is Super Bowl 54 will be happening on Sunday kick at 6 30 p.m. in Miami uh the Kansas City Chiefs one and a half point favorites as of right now and I know that we talked about this earlier Paul I think Taylor also talked about it as well that most people aren't really giving the 49ers as much credit as they deserve especially with what the defense they have is no I don't think so I mean a lot of people are acting like the Chiefs are going to go in there and shellac them as if the Chiefs haven't struggled in the back half of the season and even you know partially in the playoffs before that Texans game you know the 49ers coming in as a 13 win team you know in a tough tough one of the toughest conferences excuse me divisions in the entire NFL um so, I mean, yeah, I think it'll be a good game. I'm a little afraid that uh, the 49ers might just come out and dominate it or the Chiefs might just come out. I, I feel like there's, like, so many different options here. I'm going back and forth constantly on it. I, f- I feel like um, when when these kind of matchups happen, when you have one a great offense and a great defense, the general, peop- the general thought people lean towards is, oh, the offense is so much – better exactly because you see the offense the offense is the highlights like this is what people see when they think of the good football that is played over the course of a season Mm -hmm. they don't see what like the 49ers defensive line is able to do to teams it's and and it's bad like as in good good they do they do bad things good for the 49ers bad bad for the the other teams those four guys destroy games like 
Say they're the what only was the stat that you had. They're the only defensive, the only line, defensive that six line and a half sacks. Yeah, that has four players with at least six and a half sacks each. That's and incredible. I'm sure a couple of them probably have more than that. I can find the numbers. I guarantee at least two of them have double digits. Bosa for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I just can't think of the other one that would have. DeForest Buckner might have uh, double digits as well. I can't. Yeah, you might have like nine or ten. Yeah, very very close. But obviously, I think I just hope for a good game. These games, there's so much, so much going into them. Whether it's the commercials, the prop bets, whatever it may be, there's so much that goes into them. All that a fan really wants is a good game. Here it is. A blowout's back. Historically, if you look at it, the 49ers have been very few good Super Bowls. Every time they've been in a Super Bowl, they've like kicked the crap out of the other team. Hopefully, that's not true. I just want a good game. Armstead, <clears throat> excuse me. Armstead has ten. This is in the regular season. Armstead had ten. Bosa had nine. Buckner had seven and a half, and D Ford had six and a half. And then in the postseason already, so how many games would that be that they played? Three. Two games? Two or three. Uh, Bosa's got three sacks in two games. Armstead's got two in two games. So and Buckner and D Ford each have one. So two double digits, two very close to double digits. Yeah. It's a good defensive line. Uh, I know that Paul believes that it's – I just – what do you think, Paul? I, I can't I, tell. I just want it to be a good game. I can't yeah, pick I, a team. I want it to be a good game. I think the 49ers are going to win, but I, I really want the Chiefs to win. Um, uh, I like Patrick Mahomes. The Chiefs haven't been to the Super Bowl in a long, long time. I feel like they deserve it more, but I just – that 49ers defense – I feel like the 49ers defense is good enough to slow them down, if not stop them, and their offense is – better than a lot of people give it credit for and can do enough to this Chiefs defense because I, I don't trust the Chiefs defense at all. I think the Chiefs, I mean, I mean, you see it constantly. They have that offense that, to bail them out, you know. But Their defense has performed pretty well in the playoffs. Better than That's people true. thought originally at the very beginning of the season. Because at the beginning of the season, everyone was like, oh, Patrick Mahomes is never going to win a Super Bowl because of how bad the defense is. Yeah. I mean, they've they've done a good job with um, the predominantly running teams. Like, they, they did a good job with... Uh, Derrick Henry. Tarek Henry last week, they did a good job with but see, I uh, think, Lamar Jackson. See, I think that's the thing, though, is I, I feel like the 49ers can run. I mean, they don't have a Derrick Henry type, but that run, that rushing offense combined can basically recreate the type of, type of rushing offense that Tennessee had. But the difference is they don't have Ryan Tannehill at quarterback, which he did play well against, I mean, decently against Kansas City. He had two touchdowns, no picks, whatever. But... Um, I, 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 I feel like Garoppolo is just better than that. I mean, yeah, it's right. That, you know, that's going to put, you know, and they only beat the Titans by 11, and that's after they had to outscore them in the second half, you know. The, Chief, the Chiefs can't afford to get down two scores like they have in their last two no, games. No, not at all. Definitely no. not. Yeah. Like, because if the Chiefs get down two scores, the 49ers have the ability to scheme up a 13-play, 10-minute drive where they – shove it down their throat, and they could kick a field goal, and it won't matter. Yeah. Because you've just kept them off the field for mm-hmm. more than half a quarter. Oh, yeah. Now, the real question for some other people is we're going to talk about some Super Bowl prop bets before our first break. My favorite one, this is my favorite one I've seen, over under, how many commercials will have a dog in it? Set at three and a half. Oh. It's got to be over, it's right? It's got to be over. Everyone loves dogs. I feel like unless the, uh, the big-time... Uh, ad agencies and companies the world don't understand. I mean, with with, dogs, with how I mean. yeah, with how dogs are like yeah. dominating Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Like, why would they not have dogs? Gotta in have. Like, even if you can, even the if you can, if you can reasonably put a dog in your commercial, why don't you put a <laughs> right? dog? In your yeah. commercial? I think that over under should apply to just like how many dogs in one singular commercial. Just because Budweiser uses them, there's so many. Like any that's ad true. that includes a homeowner, they're gonna have a dog with it. Yeah, they might have two dogs in one ad, and that's already more than halfway there to the right. number of dogs. So, it's number of commercials with a dog, oh, not number okay. of dogs right. in commercials. That's, Mm, I'm just yeah, just like for some uh, perspective here. Three and a half commercials. It averages around ninety three to ninety five commercials per Super Bowl. I feel like I feel like a better over under number for that would be like five and a half, six and a half maybe. I agree. I, feel like it's I be think higher. it's definitely got to be over. 
Like four? You gotta hit four out of basically 100 commercials. Yeah, I think so. That's just 4%. But Super Bowl Sunday, 6.30 kick. Kansas City Chiefs versus San Francisco 49ers. I know everyone's going to be watching it, as we hope everyone listening as well will be watching it. We'll be coming back. Jake Romano with some women's basketball for the Bobcats. This is Sportsman. Sports Beat 1340 WUB. Obviously, just talked about the Super Bowl, but our next guest on the show for Sports Beat here on January 30th, Jake Hermana sitting across from me, is we're going to talk some women's basketball. Uh, the women's basketball team for the Ohio Bobcats is, I mean, we've said it all year, they're one of the favorites for the Mid American Conference. Um, they did not play as well as many people thought they could have in the non-conference schedule and early on in the, the Mid-American Conference schedule. But last night defeated the Akron Zips 70-57, to despite only shooting 29% in the first half and having 17 total turnovers. But, Jake, the one positive that we can see that I, excuse me, that I found in that game is Peyton Geis. Peyton Geis, career-high 8 points, 4 for 4 from the free-throw line. 19 minutes. Granted, that's second most on the season. The first was 21 against Walsh in the first game of the season. But Peyton Geis, like I said, 19 minutes, played well, especially with CeCe Hooks and Erica Johnson in foul trouble for a good majority of the game. Yeah, I mean, she scored her, I mean, half of her points when Ohio really needed it. Uh, you mentioned both CeCe and Erica uh, on the uh, on the sideline due to foul trouble. I think Erica had two. I, I don't remember what CeCe had, but they, they were both in foul trouble, essentially. Um, but yeah, it's good because when you look at that starting five and how prominent they are um, and how much how much minutes they get, you like to see at least uh, six to seven, I should say, two more people off the bench. So, I mean, if Peyton can be a, a, a crucial seventh person off the bench, because you, you obviously know Caitlin Kroll is going to come off the bench first. But or even eight because of Adisha Beck, too. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and Adisha Beck, too. Um, but that's what you want. You want to see that, right? And Peyton's getting better with every single game that she's played, and she's making her presence known uh, through every Mac game right now that she's played. And same with, same with Adisha Beck, too. I mean, she's, she's becoming prominent as well. But, yeah, a, a bright spot. I just hope Peyton keeps it up. That, that's all. I mean, eight points, uh, two or three from the floor, four or four from the line. So um, that's just all you hope for. Hopefully she can be a key contributor down uh, down the stretch. Uh, CC Hooks, like we said, with some foul trouble in that game, but shooting only shot seven of 23 from the field, below 30%. That's just the 23 number in only seven makes is the real big thing for the Bobcats because when you look at CC Hooks, you know she's going to be – the big option on offense, seven of twenty-three. It sounds a lot worse than it actually is mm -hmm. because that's the type of shots that she gets. Yeah, and I mean, she missed a lot of layups down low. Normally, I, I don't want to say layups like there are just these easy layups. I mean, uh, these are hand in her face. She's falling away. She's, yeah, she takes some pretty high degree of difficulty layups. Yeah, normally, normally she makes a lot of those, um, but a lot of them were in and out yesterday, and sometimes that happens. I mean, I mean, this team is hitting forty-eight percent of their shots. The previous three games coming into this one so it's like you're not always going to hit 48 percent from the field um but yeah it, it looks a lot worse cc had a had a better second half the whole team had a better second half i mean i think this was the first time in quite some time where they get off to a slow start and they have a much better second half than they did first half which is a good sign because knowing now that you know as a team you know that you can get off to a bad start but finish strong I think that's that's good for a team's attitude uh, going into the future. It's actually the first time in MAC play that they haven't they didn't manage at least twenty points in the first quarter. That's, that's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Actually, twenty points in the first quarter is pretty incredible. But then you look what happens, you know, in quarter four. You know, it's just consistency is sometimes an issue. But luckily, I mean, they they got the win yesterday. You saw how gritty Akron is. I mean, they've had those same kids in, in veteran veteran roles now. I mean, they're seniors. You look at Haley Rinell, and I think Shawnee Emmons is a junior. Um, they also have Jordan Dawson, who transferred from Wabash Valley uh, in West Virginia. So, um, yeah, I mean, you saw how gritty they are, too. I, I mean, the Mac East, I think, is improving. A lot of, not a lot of people see it. Only be, I mean, they see it, but you, you just give teams the record eye. You know, you look at their record, and you'll think, eh, they're, they're not that good. But I think the Mac East is a lot better than a lot of people think. I also think that Ohio didn't expect them to come out the way that Akron did. Uh, honestly, especially with the way that they performed and how inconsistent they were during that first half. I mean, I was standing there watching it on the court the whole time, and you could just see the frustration with 
EJ and Erica Johnson's face when she would have a foul, I saw it. She was in utter disgust with not only herself, but the way her whole team was playing because all they wanted to do was turn it around. And Akron was capitalizing on it. It was obvious. You could see the excitement from the benches from either side when we'd pick it up, when Ohio would pick it up they'd be super excited, and then they'd drop it a little bit, and that's where you'd get those 4.5-point gaps. So luckily they turned it around, but I don't think anyone expected Akron to come out the way that they did against Ohio, especially hitting so hard. And Alyssa Clay, I mean, I called it early during our pregame yesterday. She had a career 25 points the last time that they played in the convo, and she made two back-to-back three-pointers. Like, who would have expected that from a girl who averages 2.5 points per game, and she's already put six on the board within the first quarter. So... Um, that was the most interesting part was seeing the small players capitalize on something that was so close yet so far for them in past years. It feels like that happens sometimes for especially this season that there's there's players you know you're going to key on someone like Haley Rynell for Akron and someone like Alyssa Clay like Claire just said 18 points 5 of 11 from three-point line that's Mm -hmm. just there's players that you don't necessarily think are going to make a big impact it seems like it happens against Ohio because Everyone knows that Ohio was coming in as the MAC favorite. Well, I mean, it, it, it's the target on your back, and you 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 have to be willing to go into each and every MAC game with that mentality that you know every team's going to bring you your best. And you saw it in Kalamazoo and Western Michigan; they had the same thing. They had a player I can't, I don't even know the player's name. <laughs> I mean, she she was the same way. She averaged you know two points a game, barely played. You leave her open in the corner, and she goes. I think it was like two of four in the first quarter. And now you're like, oh crap. You know, someone that we didn't really game plan around, and now all of a sudden we have to game plan for, and that leaves somebody open that um, that we didn't that, that we had an extra body on, but now we have to put that extra body on this person on the perimeter. So, you know, sometimes that happens, and um, as much as you want to say like, oh, we're unlucky, I mean, teams just step up against you. That's what happens when you're the back favorite. Every um, every game is a trap game. Every game is basically a trap game. I mean. Uh, you look ahead to Central Michigan. Obviously, that's going to be tough just because it's Central Michigan. But like going into Eastern Eastern Michigan, that's a trap game. Having Kent State at home, that's another trap game because Kent State plays everybody hard. They played Ohio <laughs> hard last year too. So bless you, Paul. Bless you, Paul. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Ooh, that wow, that was a trifecta, oh, my camp, friend. Campus plague. <laughs> Yikes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just a grind. This conference is. I I still think this conference is wide open. It's just it's. I think too. It, it's still Ohio's to lose. But I mean, with Central Michigan coming up. I don't know. It's it's gonna be hard. I mean, history the, history is on Ohio's side. If they, they want to say the if they want to have any shot at the regular season title, they need to win on Saturday. Um, yeah, but I think I mean the regular season title is not, it's not gonna. It, get, do, it doesn't mean it, as much. It's not gonna but get you anywhere. But it's gonna get you the number one seed. Yeah. And, and obviously everybody wants that, right? Yeah. But ideally, just because you're the regular season champ doesn't mean you're going right to the NCAA tournament. Obviously, you have to go into that. You have to go into the MAC tournament where literally all bets are off. It is the most insane thing in the world. Anything can happen. There's, I think in my six years here, there's only been one time where everything has gone right. One time. What do you mean by gone right? As in like the number one, like the number, <laughs> like the number one, one seed, one number one seed and number two seeds meet in the in the championship. You know what I mean? What, what were the? So, what was Buffalo last year? They were the ones. Uh, Buffalo was the. F- Four. They were the four. Yeah, they were the. Because Central Michigan was the one, or Miami. I'm was sorry, the Miami was the three. Because uh, Ohio, Le- Ohio Le- was the two. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Ohio was two. Miami was the three. Central Michigan. We was played the them, and in in Ohio played them in the semifinal, and then Buffalo beat Central in the semi to face us. So it was the two at four. But then again, I mean, last year was a fluke because any one of the top four teams could have arguably been the the number one. I mean, right. So. Yeah, you kind of mentioned earlier about Central Michigan, that game on Saturday, obviously, at Central Michigan. But Central Michigan, last night against Buffalo, double overtime. They escaped 98-93 to stay undefeated in Mid-American Conference play. Wild, right? I mean, Wild. It's, it's what you expect from Mid-American Conference play. You never know what's going to happen. Just like you said, in the conference tournament, all bets are off. Sometimes yeah. in regular season, all bets are off. Yeah, Central Michigan's just playing at an insanely high level right now, which is something that I don't think a lot of people expected. I mean... Heather Osterley is doing amazing over there, uh, <laughs> you know, d- taking over for a legendary coach in Sue Guevara, who has been a staple in this conference for years, and I mean years, ever since she left Michigan. But um, she's doing a fantastic job, and Michaela Kelly, from I don't want to say from out of nowhere, obviously everybody knew Michaela Kelly had some talent, but I don't think everybody thought second in the nation, 24 points per game kind of talent. 
Um, I expected and thought that Michaela Kelly would, would lead them in points per game, but not at a 22 points per game mark. Like, no way. N- no way. And, but they also have Maddie Waters who can shoot the 3-2. Um, I mean, Gabby Bird, we're going to have to keep an eye on, right? She's the one who hit the game winner against Ohio last game with seven seconds left. Um, uh, Kyra Bustle, too, is a, is a threat down low in the post. She's no Raina Frost, but Bustle still improved her game. So, um, yeah, they're just playing at a... a at an unreal level that I, I didn't think 8-0 to start conference play. Like, no, I, I did not think that. Good for them, though. I mean, that's what you want, right? I mean, you, you want this conference to be as competitive as possible. It helps you, if you do go to the NCAA tournament, it helps your seeding and everything. So um, good for Central, but I, I think um, I think Ohio's ready. I think they're prepared. They should have won last game, right? I mean, Yeah, they, I, think, I think I added it up. They were like... They were like twenty six of fifty three in the lane or something. Yeah, it was another one of those crazy nights, yeah. right? Where they were just they couldn't hit anything on the inside. I mean, Akron did a great job of not guarding CC in the first half, and look what it did. You know, <laughs> like Akron literally just stuck CC's defender in the paint, and CC just stood at the top of the key like wide open. They're just begging her to shoot, and then once when CC gets in the paint, boom, bodies everywhere, and that's that's just what happens, right? Sometimes, I mean, Akron just wasn't good defensively they didn't have an athlete that could guard cc so they just didn't guard her now obviously michaela kelly will probably do that for uh central but yeah it was just one of those weird nights like jed said not not everything fell obviously not let me rephrase that a lot of shots that they normally make that ohio normally makes they didn't fall it was a two-point loss yeah, it was a two-point loss yeah but i don't think they rebounded very well either i think their rebounding efforts just were not Obviously, Ohio's one of the worst rebounding teams in the conference, but they were... Haven't they out-rebounded, like, their last four or five opponents? Uh, yeah, but, I mean, like, at that point, yeah. against Central. I mean, Central was obviously the turning point in Ohio's efforts now to rebound, yeah. but um, that one game was was not good on the boards. Uh, another thing for that one game, like you said, the 73-71 loss in the convo, Central Michigan shots 50% from the field despite 19 turnovers. Yep. It just seems like it's one of those games that, like we just said, crazy things happen. Mm-hmm. Ohio shoots and struggles from the field, and then Central Michigan shoots 50%, and they turn over the ball 19 times. Ohio has 16 points off turnovers, and the Bobcats still fall in a close game. Yeah, and, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? You always kick yourself in a two-point game like, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. If we only did this, if we only hit that one free throw, it would be a tie game. you know. Yeah, free, or, free throws just, for them are hard to come by sometimes. Yeah, hard to come by sometimes. But I think last game, what was Ohio? No, they, took they, were, tw- they were 21 of 27. Yeah, 21 of 27. Yeah, so it that's was, still very, it was a good night for them. But I think, too, if you're going to win this game at McGurk, you have to, again, get 19 turnovers, 19 to 20-ish turnovers, like you normally do every game, but you have to score off those. And I think what was big in that game was, I don't know if on the, you, if you have the box pulled up, the amount of points off turnovers I think was very low in that game. And normally Ohio converts uh, points off turnovers at a very high rate. And I don't know, what, what do you have it? 17 points off 19 assists. Oh, okay, so off of 19 turnovers? 19 turnovers, so, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's normally about where they're at. But, I mean, you... You look at some, a lot of those shots too that they that we were talking about earlier were shots they normally hit that they they, they didn't make, so you get, you got to find a game plan uh, essentially. Yeah. I, I really don't know like the solid game plan because you know Michaela Kelly is going to get hers right. She's going to score her twenty points a game, but you do have to limit her to make sure she doesn't put up thirty five on you. you know so, I mean? Someone Ohio didn't really have last time against uh, CMU was Amani Burke. She she was yeah she was relatively ineffective that night. She like they said post game she was sick. Three of thirteen from That's the field. That's true. Yeah, she she did have a fever of over hundred degrees in, in that game. So we all were like, oh, it's the Jordan flu game, you know. But, but she three, just, three yeah, of she thirteen from she the floor. Yeah, but I mean, imagine going out there and playing yeah Central Michigan with a hundred and three degree fever. It's hard, but I mean, yeah, and she had twenty points last game, which is big. It's um, her best night in a while. It's it's been her best night after obviously her season low or second season low, something four points against Bowling Green. Yeah, she's gonna be she's gonna be key. I mean, uh, up in Mount Pleasant, I think too. Katie Barker's gonna have to light it up too from outside the arc. Uh, I also look at you're gonna need something from Peyton Geis again. You're gonna need about eight eight points from her. I just one thing about this year that I've found odd is I mean Caitlin Kroll, six person off the bench, she averaged 13, 14 points a game a couple of years ago at St. Francis. I don't know what's gotten into her lately. I saw her practice all last year, and she was just I was so anxious to see her play, and she's only averaging under five points a game this year, which I mean, 
I, I figured me obviously with CC and Erica, she's not going to put up 13 games. Same with Amani. Yeah, the shots just aren't there. But I, you, you would at least think like uh, seven to eight points a game. You, you would just think, I don't know, sometimes she just doesn't. Recently, I mean, sometimes she doesn't make the smart decisions, at least the past couple of games. She, she hasn't a, just she, not been hitting. Yeah, she had a wide open fast break to the layup. All she had to do was just go up. It, you know, laid up and in herself, but she passed it backwards to to Adisha back, <laughs> and it's like no, just go up to the hoop. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just uh, I don't want to say letdown, but um, I mean, just she just hasn't been hitting shots. Her shots have been there, and a lot of her opportunities have there been there too. It's just again, sometimes she just gets so unlucky out there. She made a lot of great plays at Northern Illinois, I thought, but she just ran into some defenders and got some offensive fouls on her. But um, I they're gonna need a big game from her too, I think. So an all-around game for the women's basketball team on Saturday is what Jake thinks they need to defeat Central Michigan on the road. Another big matchup for another Bobcats team is the men's basketball team on Tuesday. They fell to Northern Illinois 61-59 to on the road as it seems like for probably the fourth or fifth straight game, the Bobcats are in every single game. There's just a matter of four to five minutes or one big thing for the game that keeps them from winning the game, Taylor. I mean, Jeff Bowles has said it time and time again in press conferences that they are a team that at times looks like they can compete with every single team in the Mid-American Conference because they can put things together on offense and defense and do everything well. But then there's times where they look like they can not score the ball for 12 minutes. There's times where they go 4 of 11 from the free throw line. Ben Vanderposs on Tuesday night, 4 of 11, where everyone else on the team was shooting 6 of 7. That's just... It's, there's things with this team that you know they can do so well if they just put together a game, it's just they can't do it. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of a side effect of being, being a young team. Like, they have a whole lot of talent. that uh, You see it in spurts, and that's what C- Coach Bowles keeps saying. But they can't put together 40 minutes yet, and I think that's just a, a, a modicum of them being so young. I mean, your, your best players are a pair of redshirt sophomores. Like, these are guys that usually are role players off the bench for teams, but with all the transfers they've had in the last couple of years and some small recruiting classes and, like, you just don't have the bodies, so you're playing a young team. Like, when your your oldest player is Jordan Dardis, who feels like it feels like he's been here for, like, 10 years. But they, they just the, – the, the experience is coming, and, and you can kind of see them getting better. I mean, these are these are games that maybe they'll win next year. And instead of being, what are they in conference? Uh, two two and, and five, I believe, or two yeah, and six. Maybe next year they're four and three, or four and five. Like maybe like these are the things that come when you get more experience. It's just a matter of time. I mean, that's the perfect way to put it. Like Taylor said, it's just a team that. They don't have a lot of experience. Jason Preston, obviously, just in his second year of college. And he's leading the nation in assists. And no one would have thought that after his year last year. He no. was a guy that averaged under two points in high school, didn't really show much last year besides that he had a good eye for passing but just didn't get the minutes, didn't have the opportunities to show what he can do with the assists. Leads the nation now in assists. Ben Vanderpost, like we said, the other redshirt sophomore for the Ohio Bobcats. Freshman of the year last year. Everyone knew he was going to be very good. He was going to be depended on for scoring for the Bobcats team. And I can't remember which coach it was. I believe it was Toledo's head coach. I can't remember the name of right now. Said everyone knew Ben Vanderpost would take a jump. Everyone knew that Ben Vanderpost was going to be the number one option for this team. But no one expected him to be so good on the inside and outside, putting in so much work. I believe the word he used was polished. Yeah, I think that was. Like his moves down low and how he's – He's kind of polished his offensive game to become, to go, what, he averaged eight points, seven points a game last year, and now it's like, what, like 15, 16 something? Like, he, he's doubled his production. He's rebounding seven, seven uh, rebounds a game. I think he's in the top 12 in the conference in shooting percentage, and he takes like five threes a game. 53% from the field, 15 and a half points per game. Yeah, and, he, and that's taking four or five threes a game. So he's averaging his shooting percentage is is crazy for the kind of shots that he takes. Yeah, seven rebounds and like you said, four point eight threes per game is what he averages. So Vanderplas turning into the guy that the Bobcats can look down the road to be a very t- good one-two punch with Jason Preston because 
Preston and Vanderpost the same age. They're even roommates. I think they're going to have some good chemistry coming up in the next couple years. Yeah, we keep saying, I mean, this team's coming, but when it, when it comes, it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of fun for men's basketball coming up this weekend. Another game that's going to be good this weekend, this uh, Friday night, Alexander basketball as they look to recover from an Athens loss. This is Sportsbeat. Sportsbeat, 1340 WUB, Athens Bulldogs basketball, top of the TDC Ohio. Seems like it happens a lot, but they are tied with a team, the Alexander Spartans. The first matchup between these two teams back in early December, the 13th, excuse me, the Bulldogs, not the Bobcats, uh, fell to the Alexander Spartans 50-42 to in the first matchup. That game, a lot of people put an asterisk next to it. Isaiah Butcher not playing in that game. Most people believe that could be part of the reason why the Athens Bulldogs fell to Alexander. But last Friday, big game, probably the biggest game in the TVC Ohio this season, the second matchup between the two. I know a lot of people have said that it was the most people in McAfee Gymnasium since Joe Burrow was playing basketball against the St. Vincent St. Mary team that came down from Akron. The Bulldogs able to pull it out against Alexander, 61-57. to It was a game that Athens pulled away early in the fourth quarter, but Alexander, even without J.K. Kearns, who was out with an injury uh, that he sustained in that game, Alexander comes back, makes it a close game, but the Bulldogs do escape with a four-point victory to move to 6-1 and one at the time in TVC Ohio play. The Bulldogs on Tuesday defeated Nelsonville to get their seventh win in the TVC Ohio and Brad Walker here with us uh, a team like Alexander we know that they're going to be a team that likes to work the ball inside to their big man Caleb Terry I mean he's the tallest player he's in the huge. area uh, but they have a guy also like we said he sustained an injury J.K. Kearns who is the point guard for this team he's the guy that I mean he's the second coach on the floor besides his dad who is on the bench yeah certainly JK has been has been one of the heads of this Alexander team really since his sophomore years when he started getting some legit minutes behind Luke Kish who was another great point guard for Alexander too. He was a great understudy for him in his first two years and then now JK has really taken over the offense in his junior and senior seasons but what I've really liked from the Spartans has been the development of Caleb Terry I mean a 6'10 guard naturally defenses are going to lock in on that but Caleb has done a really great job of improving on his post game which really wasn't too strong in his first three seasons in a Spartan uniform I mean realistically Caleb was getting starts his junior year and I believe even his sophomore year as well but early in the game he'd be taken out because he wasn't much of a factor other than the fact that he was taller than every single player that was on the floor but watching them a couple times this season I've seen a lot of great hook shots some great spin moves to the bucket and he seems stronger as well and that's all because of his confidence I think throughout the three years he wasn't as confident but then finally knowing that he's taller knowing that he's a little stronger now the summer offseason workouts and all of that good stuff he's gotten really confident inside and then when you have a great point guard to go along with that and J.K. Kearns it helps out so much unfortunately J.K. going down isn't ideal for Alexander but they did actually go on a little bit of a run once J.K. got injured. I think it threw Athens a little bit through a loop once J.K. went down, but the biggest thing to key in on when J.K. isn't in the lineup is Alexander is much taller. J.K. is not that tall of a point guard. I think he's around 5'8", 5'10", area, maybe 5'9". And so when the backup point guard comes in for Alexander, they become much taller and a much better rebounding team. And I talked to Coach, so just so I put my little piece in here. I'm the lead reporter for Hardwood, um, for Hardwood Heroes, the show we do here on campus. Um, I talked to Coach Jim Kearns, the father of JK, and he basically was saying that the team needs to find their new normal. And it's trying to replace the missing piece of what JK is. And that's putting like players like Luke Chapman in there and um, Trey Schaller. Together, they worked really well on Tuesday night. Granted, it wasn't as fancy of a win as they wanted, but they still had a 20-point lead against... Wellston on Tuesday night in the alley and that was coming off of such a big loss on Friday night and with such I would say it was almost devastating and heartbreaking to watch JK tear part of his knee they were going to do MRIs on Wednesday so yesterday we should hear what happened and 
that room tomorrow when we all go and cover the game. But according to Jim Kearns, he most likely tore his ACL in the front of Athens High School in the whole city. And it was almost heartbreaking for the team, but it was so revitalizing to watch them step up and play to that level and make a comeback the way that they did. Because all of us with Hardwood Heroes, there was 15 of us. We were all thinking we're going to be sitting here in overtime just because of the amount of energy and the level of confidence that was stemming from that team, knowing that they had their best man down and they had to prove something to this Athens high school. And they're also, Alexander's a very veteran team, and I think when a, uh, one of your best players goes down, it is very devastating. But you, you said guys like Schaller, Meckham, Terry, they've all been there. They've been there for some of these conference runs that unfortunately haven't ended all too well for Alexander. But nevertheless, they have that experience. A lot of veteran leadership on this Alexander team. It's it's felt like, and also adding in Caleb Terry, I forgot to mention him as well, or, or um, Oh, man, I just lost the quarterback's name. Caleb Easley. Caleb Easley. See, he was a Caleb. I was right on that part. Anyway, but, yeah, it's a veteran-guided team for the most part. This has been a group of guys that's been playing with each other at a varsity level for, for the, really the better part of three years now. I know some of them as sophomores didn't really get a lot of big-time minutes, but these last two seasons they've been relied on heavily. So they've come together as a unit, as you said on Tuesday, coming coming a, a big win against Wellston. I know Wellston's sitting towards the basement in the TVC Ohio, but they're a very athletic team that can sneak up on you. Athletic teams can always sneak up on you if you don't play them exactly up to your caliber but clearly Alexander handled their own business but it's going to be a tough game tomorrow night even though it's at home in the alley it's this is this is a good worn team I know that at Athens did a great job of holding them to shooting to just 33 percent once when they were in McAfee Gymnasium against the Bulldogs but from Point guard all the way to center. Every one in that, every guy in that starting five for Warren can shoot the ball. It feels like if you watch their highlights, watch their offense possessions, it's get it out, make a three, play some tight defense. Whether it's the full court press, half court trap, two three zone, man on man, it doesn't matter. This is a well coached, tough Warren team that they'll be taking on Friday. And I think the other key piece for Alexander is going to end up being that freshman from the dark and that's Kyler D'Agostino. Holy cow! He's been doing fantastic for this team. I don't think anyone expected a freshman coming off making varsity and then not only being varsity but being one of the you know starting five nonetheless and he's doing fantastic. He put up 12 points against um, Warren on Tuesday night and he had four rebounds and four steals. I mean he's just consistent with his numbers. He almost had a double-double two weeks ago when they were playing in River Valley, and that was a tough game too. They put that closer to the line than they expected. But it's things like that where you're seeing those players step up and take what they need to do and move forward. And even with that missing piece of J.K., J.K.'s still sitting on the sidelines. He's not going to let that team go down without him, especially as a senior. And I think that's another thing too. A majority of that roster is a senior class. So once all these kids graduate, it's truly going to be a rebuilding year next year. But for the meantime, they're really taking advantage of the fact that they have such veteran leadership from all the way around on the bench, especially for the players who are coming up from JV. I mean, during that Warren game, both teams then ended up clearing their benches and playing their second strings for their rest of the game during the fourth quarter, just because it was a 20-point deficit for Warren. But or for Wellston, my bad. Um, but going into Warren, <coughs> Coach Kern said that they're really going to have to look at their playbooks and make a few adjustments to make sure that they can fill the spot that needs to be filled with J.K. missing and make sure Warren doesn't capitalize on that Friday night. And this game against Warren, although it is non-conference, it still is big in the in regard of seeding. And obviously Alexander wants a good seed considering they are – going to have to go the rest of the season without their point guard, J.K. Kearns. And I like that you brought up Kyler D'Agostino. He's been a great touch since game one. I think he had like 20-plus points in his first few games. He even led the team in scoring, I think, in game one. He's a guy that can put it on the floor, but mostly he's got a great touch, that lefty shot. And it's a it's really helps when you have that in-and-out game, Caleb Terry getting it done in the post, and then D'Agostino to worry about outside. It's just a another weapon for Alexander at their disposal. So this team, although it, it hurts big time that your starting point guard is out, I think they can do enough to revitalize and make a run to the combo. I also think that Kyler D'Agostino gives a lot of hope for this team, especially when we're looking forward with what this roster has to offer. Kyler D'Agostino is going to be the main player for the next three years from here on out. Just because of the impact he's made with the starting five, 
I can only imagine what he's going to do on his own when the team's going to be heavily relying on him. I mean, in addition, you have a couple seniors or juniors like Isaac York, but it's going to basically be the Kyler D'Agostino show from here on out. So watching him get to play with people at the same level is truly incredible. Plus, I mean, he moves the ball around very efficiently on the outside of the arc. And when he gets the ball in his hands and he feels confident in enough in his placing with his feet, he'll take the shot and 90% of the time make it. He's just that kind of kid that you that you look at and you go, wow, this is a Southeastern Ohio product. I think another thing that this Warren game does is put Alexander at a certain benchmark. Right. I know They know Warren is a bigger school. They know that, I believe, Alexander's a lower division, correct? I just don't want to know. Division three, actually. Yes. Yeah, division three. So... They know that Warren is a team that is a higher division. They know that they're a team that they can probably compete with, like we said. Athens defeating Warren 77-65 to in early January, but Alexander has competed with Athens twice. This shows that this Alexander team can compete with teams that are bigger than them and more talented and possibly a little more athletic. Like Brad said, Warren's a team that likes to shoot the ball, but Alexander is a team that they have a player, Caleb Terry, who is probably – Going to be the tallest player on the court just because you most likely would hear about someone that's taller than 6'10 already for Warren. Warren's tallest is 6'5. Yeah, so that's a five inch inch, uh, discrepancy there for in the advantage of Alexander's Caleb Terry. You have to expect that Caleb Terry's going to have a very big game. (laughs) The big thing for him, and the big thing for him that I've seen in his first three, in his three years uh, playing a lot of time at the varsity level, was his defense. There was just times where. He wasn't necessarily athletic. He couldn't get out to the perimeter. And that's what a lot of centers do nowadays is they like to shoot the three. They like to be able to dribble drive a little bit. And it's almost like five guards. And with a team like Warren, who has a guy that can shoot, Caleb Terry at 6'10", I think that's going to be the biggest thing for Alexander is if he can stay out of foul trouble with his defense despite having to guard the wing. Yeah, and it also makes to see how much he can use his athleticism, which teams in this area, typically he doesn't have to because they don't have shooters one through five, but Warren does. So we'll see what Caleb Terry can do kind of guarding more of the perimeter, and I'm sure Warren's going to attack a little bit more than they usually do just to try to get Terry in foul trouble. That way it makes it easier for their shooters to shoot the three. They don't have to do it over a 6'10 defender, but it's going to test Terry a lot. That's on Saturday night versus Warren in the alley in Albany as the Alexander Spartans look to continue a good non-conference run and move their record to 13-4 as they stick at the top of the TVC Ohio tied with the Athens Bulldogs. Big game, big show of sports speed it was today, but the big game on Sunday, once again, the Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. Kick is at 6.30. We'll come back with you next Thursday, give you some highlights for that game and more on the Ohio Bobcats. This was Sportsbeat. <coughs> Thanks for listening to Sportsbeat on WOUB 1340. You can listen back to the episode at Anchor FM forward slash WOUB Sportsbeat, or you can catch the show on Twitter at Sportsbeat WOUB.